starting in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith in the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Jenna. Hey, welcome to Providence. (laughs) I love that it automatically merits a woo. I don't know why. I don't know where that practice started or how it began, but um, I'll take it. Hey, my name is Joseph. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, uh, I serve on staff here at Providence. I do a number of different things. I uh, won't go into all those things now, but um, today, as Jenna said, uh, we're actually continuing our teaching series. There's a second week titled Love God, Love People, The Heart of Discipleship, and we're really exploring what does it mean or how are we formed by the Holy Spirit into lovers of God and lovers of people. And so as I say nearly every week, uh, whether you consider yourself a Christian, not a Christian, or not sure you're a Christian, uh, we want to pray that whenever God's word is proclaimed, that it is clear and that Christ is made gloriously beautiful to your hearts. And so let me pray to that end now. Father, we come before your throne of grace and we humble ourselves in your sight. We pray just that, God, that your spirit would illuminate your word and make it clear God, that it would convict our hearts where we need to be convicted. It would compel us towards obedience. It would comfort, comfort our hearts where we need to be comforted. God, that your spirit would comfort us and that, God, we would um, know more fully and see more clearly who Jesus is and what he's called us to do. Uh, God, that we might live as your people in this world. And we pray, God, that you would give us the strength to comprehend what it is that we're reading. And God, you would give us the grace to apply it to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. All right. So last week, we looked at what is called the Great Commandment. All right. And that is a passage of Scripture where God calls us to love us with, to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we laid a foundation in our understanding that is contrary to popular thought. And that is that we are not primarily thinking beings, nor are we primarily feeling beings, But we are beings that are driven by desire and by longing. Uh, To put it another way, we are created by God to be lovers, to be lovers of God and to be lovers of people. Now, the reason I say that this is contrary to popular thought is because, and I won't go into too much detail on this, although I do love to talk about these things. Um, After the Enlightenment uh, really took took hold in Western culture and shaped Western culture, uh, we have tried to kind of lean, excuse me, we have leaned towards an understanding of the human being that we are more thinkers, we're rational beings. Uh, that basically after the Enlightenment, you know, the, the big philosophical statement came out, God is dead. Uh, it was Nietzsche who said God is dead. And basically that statement came out basically saying that once we were able to rationalize 
uh, things in the world and we had the, the advent of science and modern technology and things like that, that we would no longer need faith. Faith was essentially a construct of man that was created and used just to prop us up until we got to this point in which we were enlightened. And so the enlightenment led itself to a lot of rationalism and a lot of thinking practices. And we think our way into things and we think our way out of things. All right, and now move forward in a hundred or so years really into the enlightenment and culture has developed and evolved. And we have now taken on more of the postmodern philosophical thought. All right, and postmodern philosophical thought is not necessarily that we are thinking beings or rational beings, but we are more feeling beings. We are sensational beings. And so that's why you see in our culture today such a high emphasis put on emotion and feeling. People will basically judge whether or not something is true or false based upon how it makes them feel, right? And so on two different polar spectrums of culture in Western society, both the, the way in which we are formed and the way in which we've kind of landed is that we are primarily either rational beings or feeling beings. The Bible would say something different. The Bible would say that we are actually created as creatures of desire and longing, that we are to be lovers. And I want to make this clear. Loving involves your mind, and when you love something, your emotions will certainly be engaged in that love, but love is not an exercise only of the mind, and love is not an exercise only of the emotion. Okay, Love is something that goes much deeper. The Bible would say that love emanates from our soul, from the core of who we are, from our heart, from the depth of our being, that we are created as creatures of desire and longing and love. And so the great commandment, what we studied last week, is a call to direct our love where it was meant to be directed all along, and that is to direct it towards God and towards one another, to direct our love towards God and toward one another. And the way in which our love is ordered is also important. We're not going to get into all that today, but what we recognized last week is that we don't, because of sin in our lives, we don't love God and people like we ought to, right? No? Okay. Um, we don't love people like we ought to. We talked about that. But sin bends us inwardly towards ourselves, and we love ourselves more than we love God and more than we love people. Even the way in which we love people tends to be out of a self-serving type of love. I love you so that you will love me. I will give to you so that you will give back to me. It is a reciprocating love. The, the biblical form of love, the agape love, is not that. Um, so anyway, we, because of our sin, are bent inwardly towards ourselves. We don't love God like we ought to. So the question then becomes, how then do we come to love that which we don't naturally love? If our sin nature has bent us inwardly towards ourselves, if it has corrupted our ability to love God and to love people, how then do we become more fully formed, passionately devoted lovers of God and lovers of people? Well, I'm glad that you asked that question because that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to be talking about how to direct and order our love towards God and His kingdom. And uh, before we do that, I, I want to make it clear this is not going to be one of those talks, I don't think, that is just going to be filled with all kinds of new revelation and insight. None of my talks are ever really that way. I'm not that style of preacher. Um, I never sit down at my study and think, how can I teach them something new, insightful, and revelatory that's just going to blow their mind? I typically just read my Bible and say, I think this would be good to teach people. So um, with that being said, I want to set the, I want to set the stage in saying this is more of one of those meat and potatoes type sermons. This is one of those things that's just going to sustain you to next week, as most sermons should be. Um, it's going to sustain you to next week, and it's really going to try and make things um, that might be abstract in our mind just abundantly clear. And so I've got three points. The first point, and I'll explain the term here in a moment, but the first point is this. What is spiritual formation? The second point is what 
isn't spiritual formation. And the third point is, how do we stay on course in our spiritual formation? What is spiritual formation? What isn't spiritual formation? And how do we stay on course in our spiritual formation? So the first point, what is spiritual formation? Now, I first want to give a definition for that before we move into the text in 1 Timothy. But spiritual formation is really just a synonym for the word discipleship, which is what we talked about last week, right? Um, Discipleship is that lifelong, ongoing process whereby we are more fully formed into the likeness and image of Jesus. But as we said last week, God does that by directing our love towards him. So when we talk about spiritual formation, we're really talking about being formed by the Holy Spirit, spiritual formation, formed by the Holy Spirit over time into more fully formed lovers of God and lovers of people, okay? Now, last week we also made the case, and I want to make this clear before we, keep, before we keep moving, we made the case that not only are we creating as loving beings, but our loves, because we are driven by our love, like our love is kind of like that autopilot. Like it just, if, if we don't direct our love, our love will direct us wherever, wherever he wants to go. And whatever sinful direction um, our hearts are, are pointed, if we don't direct our hearts, they will go in, in the direction towards sin. And so because we are sinful beings and because sin corrupts our hearts, and we understand that our loves need to be reshaped and they need to be reordered. And so when we don't take hold of our loves, if you will, um, and we don't seek to take our thoughts captive and all of those things like the Bible would command us to, and our hearts kind of lead us astray, we will begin to love the world, right? We'll love the world, the things of the world, and all that's in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. This is what John says in 1 John Chapter 2, I believe it is, maybe 3. Um, but nonetheless, we become like that which we love. If we love the world, we become more like the world, right? So if we love God, we become more like God, right? So that's the heart of discipleship is that God is training our loves to love him. And in the process of loving him, we actually become more like him. When we love the world less and we love God more, we become less like the world and more like God. Amen? And so laying that foundation, I want us to understand that whenever I say spiritual formation, really I'm talking about is the lifelong process of you being formed by the Holy Spirit into a more passionate, fully formed, fully devoted lover of God and lover of people. And that takes time, and that's not something that happens overnight. And the reason that I use the word spiritual formation instead of the word discipleship for this morning is because I think discipleship is one of those Christian terms. It's kind of loaded. A lot of us use it, but we don't really know what it means. So spiritual formation is a little bit descriptive. But moving forward in this series, if you hear me say spiritual formation, know that I'm talking about discipleship. And if you hear me say discipleship, know that I'm talking about spiritual formation. Okay, everyone with me? All right. So let's get into the text and see a little bit more about what spiritual formation is. So in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we read verses 6 through 10, um, or 6 through 11. And I'm, I'm not going to go through and read them all line by line again. Here's what I will say. Paul is writing to Timothy. Uh, and Timothy is a young pastor. He's a brand new pastor over an already established congregation at, at, in the city Ephesus. So Timothy became the senior pastor, if you will, of the church at Ephesus. And he was young. And what we know about the Ephesian church, the Ephesian church is a pretty prominent church in the scriptures. What we know about the Ephesian church is that it was nestled, obviously, in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is a large city. It was, a, it, was a pop, it was an influential city. It was a big church. It was a growing church. The church had experienced a revival of some sorts. The church actually started um, with, through a riot that occurred through the Apostle Paul's ministry. And so it was a, a, like an awakening, an outpouring of God's spirit, if you will. And so this was a place of a lot of spiritual activity, this church. But 
as time had gone on and Timothy assumed the pastorate there, apparently he was struggling to some degree on how to lead people, not just, now listen to this, not just in that initial sensational experience of salvation, but how do I lead people in the ongoing arduous task of growing into the likeness and image of Jesus? And this was a challenge for Timothy, and so Paul writes him a letter. As a matter of fact, he writes him two letters, but we're reading out of the first one. And so given that context, I want you to understand that what Paul is saying to Timothy is actually very important. Because here's Timothy struggling to pastor this church, and so the words that Paul are giving him are words that ought to be prioritized, right? They ought to be prioritized in the church at Ephesus, and by extension, they're words that ought to be prioritized by our church, as a church that's reading and submitting to the scriptures today. And so whenever Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, chapter, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says to them, or he says to him, if you put these things, hold on to the word things, before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. What things is he talking about? Well, if you go back and you read the context in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 2, and 3, you understand that Paul is already kind of laying a framework for the gospel, and he's laying a framework for, a structure, for how the church ought to be structured. And then he goes in and he talks to Timothy about um, the mystery of godliness, right? And so he says to Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now, the next thing that I really want us to focus on is what happens after that first comma there. He says, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. All right. First point in what is spiritual formation is this. Being spiritually formed is being trained in the words of the faith. Did you know that you needed to be trained? Like spiritually, you needed to be trained or you need to be trained, you don't just need to know the words of the faith. You need to be trained in the words of the faith. There's a difference. You don't just need to know good doctrine that you followed. You need to be trained in how to apply good doctrine to your life. And there's a difference. There's a massive difference. There's a significant difference. The Bible says that in James, we can deceive ourselves if we are hearers of the word and not doers also, right? Basically, if we just get used to hearing sermons, hearing podcasts, hearing content, reading books, hearing Bible studies, participating in those things, if we're constantly consuming but never cultivating our, in our lives a life of discipline and, and obedience, then James says that we're actually deceiving ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves and, and perhaps into believing that we, are full, that we have been saved and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and we really haven't. Also, James is the one that tells us that even the demons tremble and believe. But they're not saved. What do the demons not do that we Christians ought to do? Obey God's word. The demons can't obey God's word. They're disobedient to God. Christians can. So what will distinguish a Christian between someone who is not a Christian is not only our faith, but according to James, also our deeds, our obedience, our duty, our discipline, our practices will distinguish us. And so Paul wants to tell Timothy, he just want to remind Timothy that we need to be trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So we need to know good doctrine. We need to, to be trained in the words of faith. But here's 
where we keep going. In verse 7, it says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. It's another way of saying, Don't bother yourself with things that don't have any eternal substance or meaning. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So we have to understand, brothers and sisters, that we, that we have to be trained in godliness. We have to be trained in growing in godliness. Now, godliness is another way of saying growing in Christ-likeness. It's becoming more and more like God, more and more like Jesus. We have to be trained. This is something that we are trained for. Now, because we, we know that our hearts are filled with sin and corrupted by sin and contaminated by sin and we are bent inwardly towards ourselves, we have to understand that, of course, Jesus is after our hearts. Amen? That's why he says, I want you to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. God is after your hearts. That's why, like we said last week, Jesus critiques the Pharisee. These people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, right? Jesus is after our hearts. Hearts. Now, that being said, Jesus goes after our hearts through our obedience. This is where it gets a little bit challenging and tricky for some of us. I want us to understand that being a disciple is being someone who is surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, submitted ourselves to the Word of Christ, and is walking out that which He, he, is, he has called us to do. That's why in the Great Commission, Jesus says, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do what? To obey all that I have commanded you, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. Notice he doesn't say, I want you to go and make disciples, I want you to baptize them, and I want you to teach them, and then I will be with you. Notice he doesn't say, I want you to go, and I want you to make disciples, and I want you to baptize them, and then I want them to just believe. He says, I want my disciples to be taught to obey. Being a disciple of Jesus is God going after our hearts through our obedience. Why is God so passionate about training our hearts through obedience? It's because sin leads us to disobey. And our disobedience leads to distorted desires. Let me put it another way. The more you disobey, the more disordered your heart gets. Right? Let me put it another way. The more you disobey God's word, the more your conscience becomes seared. The more your conscience becomes seared, the more your heart grows numb and dull. The more your heart grows numb and dull, the least, the, 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 the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the, the more your heart grows numb and dull and lifeless, right? the less capable you're going to be of loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Do you see how that kind of creates a full circle there? You start going on the path of disobedience, your heart is going to follow. All right. So what has to happen is our hearts have to be retrained and reformed. Our hearts have to be retrained and reformed. And Paul knows this. He says that we have to train ourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and the life that is to come. So in other words, we have to take our hearts into the gymnasium of spiritual formation, if you will. Like if you want to go get in shape 
and uh, if you're currently not in shape and you want to go get in shape, uh, one of the things that you're going to do is you're going to have to figure out some sort of exercise regimen, diet, dieting, and all of that stuff in order to get, get yourself in shape. Um, oftentimes that involves going and getting a gym membership, enrolling in the gym, and not just having a gym membership, but actually walking through the front doors of the gym. And listen, not just walking through the front doors of the gym, but when you're in the gym, actually lifting up some equipment or actually getting on the treadmill. And listen, even after getting on the treadmill, actually making it go faster than pace two, you know? You can't just do that for three hours and think, man, I'm going to be whipped up in a great shape here in a moment, all right? Or just do that for three minutes. I mean, depending upon your age and all of that kind of stuff, that might play out a little bit differently, okay? Um, that might be like screaming pace for some of us. But nonetheless, you've got to go, you've got to, you've got to enroll, you've got to walk through the front doors, and you've actually got to get to work. You've got to sweat, right? Your body has to be trained. If you're ever going to get into shape, your body has to be trained. If our hearts are going to be shaped and directed in the way in which they ought to, they have to be put into shape because they're currently out of shape. They're misformed. They're disordered. So we have to take our hearts into the gymnasium of spiritual formation. Ironically, the word that Paul uses there for training is the Greek word whereby we get the word gymnasium that we actually take our hearts and we train them or we, or we train ourselves for godliness. Now, I want to make this abundantly clear. The call to delight in and desire God is never elevated above obedience. It is always paired with it. The call to delight in and desire God is never elevated above obedience. It is always paired with it. And what do I mean by that? And why is that relevant to what we're saying here? It's because if we're honest, many of us have been raised or um, discipled to believe what I consider to be a fallacy. And that is that God is only after our ob obedience if we delight in doing it or if we desire to do it. In other words, if I just do the right thing, if I just do the thing that God has commanded me to do, but my heart's not in it, then, it, then that's not what God is after. The reality is God calls you to obey, period, right? Just like with my son, I don't always care if Elijah delights in doing what I ask him to do. Do you, parents? At some point, it's like, I don't really care about your, your, your disposition or your attitude at this point. Just do what I'm telling you to do. Why? Because I want you to learn that doing what dad tells you to do is important for your growth and your formation. And over time, as you learn to do what dad is calling you to do, hopefully my relationship with you is going to be so loving, so engaging, and so caring that you're going to see that my love for you and my desire for you to obey me has always been connected together. I've never been calling you to obey out of some sense of, of just wanting you to, to white-knuckle your way into obedience, Elijah. I want you to obey because I want you to grow up and I want you to mature and I want you to obey because I love you. And this is the same relationship that God our Father has with us. He wants us to obey Him, and He knows, though, that in our obedience, His patient and persistent love and care in our lives is eventually going to open us up to the fact that we have had a loving Father all along that has always wanted our good through our obedience. Are you with me? You guys are quiet. The nine was so much more loud than this. I'm feeling really, really scared up here. It's like I don't know what's going to happen in the foyer after this. Um, 
But the call to delight in and desire God is never elevated above obedience. It's always paired with it. We are never told we should obey only when we desire to. To the contrary, oftentimes in Scripture, we're actually commanded to desire God and delight in Him. Like Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. He actually commands us to delight in Him. He actually commands us to desire Him. Those are two commands that we are to obey that actually tell us how to direct our delights and our desires. Right? To love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength is itself a command that we're called to obey. What we will tend to do, though, is we will say, here are my, de- here are my desires, the things that I desire to do. Here are the disciplines, the things that I ought to do, the things that God is calling me to do. Unless I desire to do these things, I'm not going to do these things. But spiritual formation actually says, no, no, no. In doing these things, these things over here, your desires are actually going to become more fully formed and spiritually mature. By training your heart, by training yourself for godliness, your desires actually begin to be reshaped and reformed and brought into submission under the word of God. And as your desires are brought into submission under the word of God, they start getting directed towards God and his glory and the good of other people. And you start becoming more spiritually mature. Now, I don't want this to lead towards some sort of legalistic thinking I know what happens is oftentimes when we start talking about obeying the Bible, people are like, ah, legalism, legalism. They start getting scared. Legalism, it's a legalist church. They're fundamentalist. They're going to tell me to unplug my TV. Stop watching Netflix. That's not where we're going with this. I don't want us to lead towards legalistic thinking. Here's, here's what I will say, though. I also don't want us to look at following Jesus as something that we just haphazardly or lazily stumble along in either. And I would, I would submit to you that the contemporary church in America's greatest danger is not legalism, it's laziness. Maybe 60 years ago, the landscape of evangelical Christianity was we need to be afraid of legalism. Whenever Christians were primarily defined by what they don't do, right? Don't do this, don't watch rated R movies, don't smoke cigarettes, don't drink beer, don't drink wine, you know, and if you do drink wine, hide it whenever the preacher comes over. Like, that's, that's kind of how it was like 50, 60 years ago. Christians were defined by what they weren't to do. And if you did those things, then essentially you were no longer in favor of fellowship with God, right? That would be considered legalism. All right, but the, 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 the kind of spirit of the age today in contemporary evangelical, evangelicalism, I am so tongue-tied, I should have drank more water. Um, the, the, the spirit of the air today is that we are more prone towards laziness. Where church and Christianity has become reduced to, now check this out, it has become reduced to nothing but a weekly meeting by which whenever we attend this meeting, the goal is pretty simple. Be encouraged, be built up, be lifted up, so that way that emotional, sensational high can get you through to the next week and then hit that bump again. And in between, the church leaders, they're just kind of hoping and happy to know that you're out there trying to live the Christian life. But do you see how that's created spiritual consumers? We're not actually growing in spiritual formation. We're not actually growing in discipleship. All we're growing in is dependency upon a worship experience, 
whereby if the music was right and we hit the right, if we ordered the service based upon the right emotional arc and we actually cried in service, then we know that we had a great Sunday, right? I can't wait to get back there and cry next week, you know? And we think that that's like the sum total of what it means to be formed spiritually. But what that does is that creates consumeristic and lazy Christians. Because you're just being taught to consume a spiritual good, and you're not being taught to cultivate a spiritual life. Two totally different things. And so whenever Paul puts these challenge, this challenge before Timothy, he says, Timothy, I want you to train yourself for godliness. And I want you to understand that this is a value, not just in this life, but in the life that is to come. So here's what I want to say really quickly. That statement is actually pretty profound whenever it comes to spiritual formation, because Paul is saying that training yourself for godliness, first and foremost, is a value in this life. Oftentimes we think that discipleship and spiritual formation, that's just preparing us for the next life. It's kind of like we're just doing the hard thing now, and then one day we're going to have pie in the sky. But Paul actually says, no, 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 training yourself for godliness actually puts yourself in a situation. It puts you in a situation where in this life you're going to reap the benefits from it. In this life you're going to reap the benefits of living a godly life. My iPad almost died, and that was kind of scary. In this life you're going to reap the benefits of living a godly life. And, of course, it's preparing you for the life that is to come. So some of us are afraid of the legalism. I'm afraid of that too, I suppose, but I'm probably more afraid, especially in our context, of laziness. But spiritual formation is the wholehearted pursuit of growing in what does it mean to love God and love people more fully. So as we're talking about that this summer, I want you to understand that every week when we get up here and we say, this is how we're formed spiritually, this is how we're formed spiritually, you understand that it's actually, we're talking about having our hearts brought into the gymnasium and trained for godliness. The problem with many of us, though, is that we treat the church not like a gymnasium, but like a country club. We don't expect to join a church and actually be held to account to work out our hearts and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling there, right? We actually think that the church is a place that we pay our dues, we show up, things are done for us, the, all of these things are administered for us. We've got priests or, or pastors and stuff that do the work of ministry for us. We've got home group leaders that do all of that for us. We've got go team coordinators that do all of that for us. We just show up, we participate in as much as we feel comfortable, and then we leave, and then we think, that was great. We don't understand that God has actually designed the church to be this place whereby our hearts are trained and our bodies are conditioned and our minds and our souls are conditioned to love God more fully. You actually join the church not to take it easy, but to work out. All right. That being said, because I, I know that we tend to crash the car on one side of the ditch or the other, I want to explain to you what spiritual formation is not. First and foremost... We need to understand, according to what Paul is talking about here and what he's putting before Timothy, is spiritual formation is not trying, it's training. It's not trying, it's training. There's a difference, okay? There's a big difference in between these two, trying versus training. If you were to go to the doctor and have a physical exam taken, maybe for a job or something like that, you just routine, physical, whatever. If you were to go to the doctor and the doctor was to look at you and to say, you know what, after 
performing your physical and looking at uh, both your, like just how you're built, your genetic composition, everything that you've got going on for you, looking at the arc, arch of your feet and the way your muscular and your, your skeletal system is built out, you actually have, in my opinion, the greatest potential to become a world-class marathon runner. You're like just going in for a routine exam and you're like, whoa. You walk out like, man. Go home, tell your wife, hey, honey, guess what? Uh, Doc did a little exam today and turns out that uh, I've got the potential to become a world-class marathon runner. Your wife is like, strangely, I don't see the same thing, but <laughs> if the doc says so. So you leave that meeting, you're motivated, you go the next, you go that afternoon, you go buy the shoes, you know, not the little cheap $20, $30 sock, honey, shoes or whatever they are, but you go like invest in the $100 shoes that are like perfectly molded to your feet, the good running shoes and and then, or probably more than that, I know I'm old school, it's $100 a lot for a pair of shoes of me. But anyway, you go and you buy the, the really good running shoes, and then, and then the next morning you wake up early and you decide, I'm, all right, it's, it's, it's time. It's time to achieve destiny. I'm going to wake up, I'm going to put on these shoes, and I'm going to go for a run. And you head out the driveway, you do your little stretches, you know, and you get out there on the street and you take off running and you get a little bit less than a mile down the road and you start dry heaving. And you're like, oh, that doctor was full of it, man. This doesn't feel like destiny at all. This feels more like a spiritual attack, you know? Like this is, this is awful. But here's the reality. Just because he said you have the potential to achieve that kind of greatness, to become a potential world-class marathon runner, that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to achieve that overnight. Now, you can wake up and you can try your hardest but guess how far trying is going to get you? A little less than a mile down the road, and there's going to be some dry heaving at the end. If you're actually going to achieve your potential, you don't just wake up and try. What do you do? You wake up and you train. And training is different than trying. Trying is that momentary burst of energy where you've just got that all-out pursuit, and you're like, I'm going for it. I'm going for the 26 miles and you get less than a mile down the road and you're done. You're like, somebody call 911. I've fallen and I can't get up, right? That's what happens. Training though is waking up and understanding that if I'm ever gonna run 26 miles, I've actually just gotta be able to run one first. So my first goal is to run one mile. Then it's to run 1 1.1, 1 1.2, 1.3, 1.5, 1.6, 1.0, you, you see where I'm going? Two miles, five miles, nine miles, 12 miles. You condition your body over time to achieve that goal. Whenever the Bible says that we are called to be spiritually mature, that we are called to grow up into the likeness and image of Jesus, we need to understand that's not going to happen through trying, that's going to happen through training. The reason why many of us get so discouraged in our spiritual formation, our discipleship, is because we have a trying paradigm, not a training paradigm. We get up, we get motivated, we leave the Sunday gathering, we leave the conference, we leave the whatever it is, and we're like, by golly, today's going to be the day that I'm going to accomplish victory over my sin, I'm going to finally de defeat that thing that I've been struggling with, and then you're going to try your hardest and you're going to fail, and then what happens? You get discouraged. And your discouragement eventually leads to despair. Despair eventually leads to apathy. Apathy to indifference. Indifference to inactivity. Inactivity to complete and utter failure and failure to doing nothing. You've just resigned in yourself that you're never going to be able to grow, so you stop training. 
So spiritual formation is not trying, brothers and sisters. It is training. It is the slow, progressive, and ongoing pursuit of a goal that is far beyond our current capabilities. It requires not only the supernatural power and strength of the Holy Spirit working in us, it requires our diligent and disciplined commitment to growth. So it's not trying, it's training. The second thing the spiritual formation is not is it's not earning, but it does require effort. Right? Dallas Willard in his book, The Great Omissions, a book on discipleship, said that God is not opposed to effort. He is, however, opposed to earning. Now, what is Dallas Willard saying? He's saying that it's important for Christians to understand that God is not opposed to you applying effort in your spiritual formation, in your discipleship. God is opposed to you trying to earn what has already been given to you in Christ Jesus. God does not want you to labor towards that which has already been given. God wants you to labor towards that which you can enjoy, enjoy more fully. So let me put it this way. God is not after your earning. He is after your enjoyment. He is calling you to enjoy more fully that which has already been put on offer for you in Christ. By calling you to train yourself for godliness, God is actually saying in growing in godliness, you are going to enjoy the benefits of being a Christian far more than you would if you were still living in a carnal and worldly way. So it's not directed towards effort, discipleship, or directed towards earning. Discipleship is directed towards greater enjoyment of God and the, and the good gifts that he's given us in Christ. So it's not earning. It is effort, though. The next thing spiritual formation is not is it's not payment. Okay? So on, one, on the one hand, we're not earning anything. On the other hand, we're not paying for anything. But it does require sacrifice. Following Jesus requires sacrifice. Now, we aren't paying for our sins through obedience. That's called penance, and we don't do that. We parted ways with that in the Protestant Reformation. Um, praise God for that. Amen. So we are not called to pay for our sins through our obedience. However, we are called to sacrifice. Romans 12.1 actually says that we should present our bodies as a living sacrifice before God. So how often should we sacrifice, pastor? How much should we sacrifice, pastor? Well, according to Romans 12.1, your whole life is a sacrifice. Everything is a sacrifice that is offered up unto God. So whenever you're sitting there considering how much money should I give to the church, how much time should I give to my neighbor, how much this, the question is not how much should you give, it's how much should you keep. Because the paradigm starts with sacrifice. It starts with everything. But it's important for us to understand that following Jesus is actually going to require sacrifice. Now, our sacrifice is not like the sacrifice of Christ. Our sacrifice is like that one represented in the parable of the treasure in the field in Matthew 13. What happens in the parable of the treasure in the field? Well, basically a man walking in a field one day. He stumbles upon a treasure. He realizes, he looks at the treasure. He estimates that the value of the treasure is worth far more than he currently owns. So what does he do? He goes back. He takes his current possessions. He sells them all. And then he goes and buys that field that the treasure was hit, hidden in. Now he knows in buying the field, he gets the field and the treasure, right? So technically, the man sacrificed his home his earnings, everything that he had to go buy that field. But in buying that field, he got something far greater, right? 
This is the kind of sacrifice that Christ calls us to. Yes, he calls us to sacrifice, but it's only in exchange for something that's greater, something that's better, something that's of more value. We lay down our lives for Christ and we get by the power of the Spirit the very life of Christ offered to us, which is incredible. But I don't want us to walk around thinking that being a Christian is not going to require sacrifice. It often is because we are called to live as sacrificial beings. The last thing I want us to understand is that spiritual formation is not something that we achieve overnight. It is something that we progress in over time. So you can't make yourself spiritually mature by just trying. I made that case earlier. It is a work of the Holy Spirit in us, and it is a work that the Spirit progressively does in us over time. I've heard this said before. Sanctification, which is that ongoing process of growing, is not like a sprint. It's more like a low crawl on your elbows and knees. That's what it's like to be a Christian. Some of you are like, man, I'm so glad that I came to church this morning again and, re and realized that being a Christian is much harder than I thought it was going to be. So we are called to progress in. We are called to grow up. These are scriptures. We are called to grow up, to mature, to take our thoughts captive, to learn, to submit, to surrender, to sacrifice, to serve, to give, to care, to love. We are called to grow in all of these things. We're called to mature in all of these things. We're called to develop in all of these things. In order for us to, to grow and develop in something, we have to admit that right now we're currently weak and anemic in it. So there has to be a level of honesty with where we're at. So I want to make it abundantly clear. Spiritual formation is not trying, it's training. Spiritual formation is not earning, it's effort. Spiritual formation is not payment, it's sacrifice. And spiritual formation is not achievement, it is progression. It takes time. But the last point that I want to make before we close out is this. How are we formed by the Spirit over the long haul? How do we endure in the process of spiritual formation? We've got four things here, and I'll go through them quickly. Number one, and most importantly, we are formed by and through the gospel. So all of our spiritual formation has to be centered upon and built upon the beautiful truth and reality that God has gone before all of us in all of these things. And the reason that we can celebrate with great confidence that discipleship for us is not earning, but it's effort. It's because salvation has been earned for us by Christ Jesus. Amen. So the, the reason that we can lay our head on the, belt, on the pillow at night and not be afraid that we have to earn our salvation is because we know at the end of the day our salvation has been earned for us by Christ Jesus and we didn't do a single thing to earn it. None of our efforts could have ever earned our salvation for us. Only the efforts of Christ himself could have done that. The reason that we can go to bed at night and know that spiritual formation is, is not something that we have to sacrifice for is because we know that Christ sacrificed his life for us. We sacrifice from a position, not for a position. We sacrifice because Christ has been the ultimate sacrifice for us. Amen? The reason that we can go to bed with our head on the pillow at night and sleep peacefully is because we know that in our discipleship, in our spiritual formation, we are not trying to achieve victory for ourselves over Satan's sin and death. We know that victory has already been achieved for us and we are actually operating from a place of victory, not a place of defeat. Christ has defeated Satan's sin and death in a cosmic way. We are still walking out the implications of our salvation. We are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are walking and growing and maturing and developing and conquering sin 
in our daily lives, although sin has been conquered for us at a cosmic level by Christ already. So if we're going to grow spiritually, we have to constantly and consistently come back to the gospel. The gospel has to be the foundation and the fountainhead of our spiritual formation. It has to beat with a metronome sameness like a drum in our head. You have been saved by grace through faith. You have been justified by your faith, right? This has to be beaten into our heads over and over and over again. Whenever we're tempted to try and earn, you remember it's already been earned for you. But we also understand that we grow, not just by recalling and reciting and remembering and celebrating the gospel, but we grow through the Holy Spirit. Although the discipleship requires discipline, we need to remember that our efforts are given power by the Spirit. The Spirit of life dwells in our mortal bodies and gives life to them. So whenever you're discouraged and you're beat up and you're like, man, all of my training efforts aren't really working, you have to understand that the Spirit of God is inside of you. And the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in you and can now give life to your mortal bodies. And so that should be an encouragement to you. An encouragement to you in your times of weakness to pray for the Spirit's strength. An encouragement to you that whenever you're, you feel like you can't even pick yourself up to drag yourself into the gym, so to speak, that the Spirit of God is able to do that. So through the gospel, through the spirit, next, we are formed in the church. So I want to make this clear. This is not something that we do on our own. The church is the proverbial gymnasium of our spiritual formation. And I wish, I so wish, man, I, I'm, I'm, I so, so desperately wish that Christians would just understand that church is not something that you also haphazardly engage in. Church has been given to you as a gift by God to form you into the likeness and image of Jesus. Your spiritual formation will rise and fall based upon the depth and the level and the commitment and the involvement that you have with your local church. It is hard for me to ever say to you that I have found a spiritually mature Christian that is not deeply and vibrantly engaged in the life of a local church. They may appear to be spiritually mature, but I would guess that they are only spiritually mature in, in the areas of practice that involve disengagement, not engagement. Meaning they're good with solitude, they're good with prayer, they're good with fasting, they're good with abstaining, they're good with all, you ever seen someone like that? They just seem so spiritually mature, but that's, they, they abstain from everything, they speak kindly and they do all of those things. But then you call them into the messy, nitty gritty life of a local church and ask them to serve people and ask them to pray for people and ask them to care for people and ask them to be involved in people's lives and ask them to cry with people in the hospital and ask them to show up to the worship gathering week in and week out and week in and week out. And don't just show up with your body. Show up with your mind. Show up with your mouth. Show up with your hands. Show up with your heart. You, you, you look at that person and you're like, well, not so spiritually mature anymore. But a fully formed, spiritually mature person will be deeply engaged in the life of a local church. And he will also be spiritually mature in some of those practices of disengagement as well. The church is the gymnasium by which we grow in our spiritual formation. The last thing is that we grow over time. We take small incremental steps. Spiritual formation is about training for a marathon, not doing wind sprints. And repetition, friends, is not only helpful, it's necessary. Now, why do I say this to us? I say this to us because I know how this works. Whenever you start talking about repetition, people are allergic to that term 
Because repetition in our culture equals boredom, you know? Like we think, I don't want to repeat something over and over and over again. I'll get bored of it. And if I get bored of it, then it will lose meaning. You ever heard that? I don't want to sing that song over. Do we have to sing that song? We sang that song two weeks ago. Why can't we sing a new song? You think, man, my heart's going to be disengaged. But do you realize that actually the things that you do most often are the things that form you most fully? You sing the same song long enough, it gets into you, doesn't it? It gets into you. It, it does. And you, and, you, and you, if it gets into you, sometimes it gets into you for the worse, like some of the kids' songs that we have to listen to in my house. But then there are some songs that get into you and they're just, they, they now become part of your life. Like, don't stop believing by journey, right? That is just in me. And if that song were to come on right now, I would stop mid-sermon and sing it. And I would try and hit those Steve Perry highs, even though I would fail miserably at it. That's one of those songs. I've listened to it so many times. It was a soundtrack in my home growing up. My mom loved Journey. And so Journey was listened to so frequently and so rhythmically in my life. I know every Journey song backwards and forwards. Every single one of them, their whole catalog. I guarantee you I can sing every lyric and every song. But that's because it was formed into me. Do you see where I'm going with this? Repetition actually forms you. Repetition actually th takes things that are outside of you and puts them inside of you. We as a culture, though, are allergic to repetition because we think that repetition equals boredom, but repetition actually equals formation. The more in which we do something over and over and over again, the more it gets into us, the more it forms us, the more it shapes us. And so might I submit to you, it's actually good that you sing the same song a lot. It's actually good that you read the same passage over and over and over again. It's actually good that you commit yourself to memorizing scripture. It's actually good that you, rather than be committed to more and more Bible study, you're committed to more and more Bible application. It's actually good for you. Rather than reading more books, go back and read the ones that you've already read and see if the Spirit has actually used those things to, to form life into you. It's good for us. Repetition forms us. And one of the primary ways that the church has been regularly reminded of and nourished in the gospel is through the sacrament of communion. And the Lord's Supper is this, this tangible reminder of God's love, mercy, and grace towards us. And so it's something that we are going to begin observing every week here at Providence. Now, again, some of us, oh no, we're going to start doing it every week. It's repetition. It's going to lose its meaning. No, no, no. I firmly believe in doing it every week. It's actually going to come into your life and develop more meaning over time. You don't say to your spouse, I'm not going to kiss you that often because I don't want it to become routine. I don't want to stop meaning it. Do you? No. You don't say to your spouse, I'm going to stop saying I love you so often because I don't want to stop meaning it. The Lord's Supper is that intimate moment of communion with the Lord. And if we stop meaning it, the problem isn't in the practice, the problem is in our heart. So we chose to move towards doing communion every week because we believe that we are more formed and nourished through repetition. And what better way to be formed and nourished than through the body of Christ and the blood of Christ being put on display for us and us actually partaking in it every single week. And so... 
we, in order to facilitate this week, weekly move, though, we are now also this week beginning the practice of intinction. Fancy term, which is basically just taking the bread and dipping it in the cup instead of taking the bread and then having the little cup separate and sipping like this. Now, some of you are like, why would we do that? Well, the elders sat around and talked about this a couple times um, and realized that we, we came to the conclusion that the bread represents the body of Christ, the cup represents the, body of, the, the blood of Christ, and we are more convinced that it's, how the, that it's not so much how the elements enter our body, but that they enter our body. And that's what nourishes us. That's what gives us strength. That's what sustains us. Is that the elements enter our body? Now, I know some of you will take issue with that and you say that it matters. And that's okay. We had to make a, we had to make a judgment call. Are we going to keep observing communion just once a month and do it the old way, which is time-consuming and laborious for all of our volunteers, or would we rather move to a weekly practice and make it a little bit less time-consuming for our volunteers and actually just try and make sure that we're infusing meaning into the practice by doing it every single week? And so we chose the latter instead of the former. We want to move to it, doing it every week. But some won't like this. Uh, you'd rather observe communion monthly rather than weekly. And we want you to know, like, with, from a pastoral heart, we understand that. We'll talk with you about that. We'll, I'll, I'll be willing to share more with you about that. Um, some won't even like that we're doing the, the, the practice of the dipping and not the sipping. Um, but I'd be willing to talk with you about that as well. Some of you are giggling. You're like, is that a, that a thing? It's a thing, okay? It's a thing. Um, but at this time, I want to call everyone to stand. And I want to recite over you the words that, that Jesus said to his disciples. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup, or he took the, the bread, and he held it up to his disciples, and he told his disciples, this is my body that's been given to you. In the same way, it says that he took the cup, and he held the cup up, and he tells his disciples, this is, my, this is the blood of the new covenant, my blood that has been shed for you. And he tells his disciples, as often as you do this, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And he also tells them that, when you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there is no prescription on how often we should or shouldn't do communion. Jesus says as often as you do this. We say, because he also says that you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, this is something that should be done regularly in the life of the church. We regularly want to be proclaiming the Lord's death. We regularly want to be remembering his broken body or his body that was given for us and his blood that was shed for us. We, we regularly want to remember those things, and so we've chosen to move to the weekly practice. Now, if you're a Christian, in a moment, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to call you forward to receive, and the way you'll do this is you'll, if you're the first down here, you'll take the napkins off, and you'll just break from the bread, and you'll dip it in the cup, and then you can receive it into your body as you go back to your seat. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to use this time, just kind of remain in your seat, and uh, to, to sit and to use this time for reflection. Now, we don't ask you to stay there because we want to be sectarian or mean or anything like that. We really just believe that this is a sacrament that's for the Christian, and so it would be out of order for you to come and take something, partake of something that you don't yet believe in. And so the first step would be for you to pray a prayer of belief, which we'll put on the screen for you. And then if you pray that prayer, we want to know about it, we want to hear about it, and then we would invite you to come and to, uh, to, to re receive communion after you've put faith in Christ. So let me pray for us, and then I will call everyone forward to receive communion. Father, we come before your throne of grace. We humble ourselves in your sight, and we thank you that you have given us all that we need in Christ Jesus and far more than we deserve. And God, I pray that this morning, as we are reminded of the grace that has been shown to us in Christ, his body broken, torn. God, it says in your word in Isaiah that he was so marred that he was not recognizable. 
his flesh. God, as we partake of this bread, I pray that it would be a constant and tangible reminder of the love that you have for us in Christ, that you were punished for our sins. And as we partake of the wine or the juice, God, I pray that we would remember that your blood was poured out for us as a sacrifice and a propitiation for our sins. God, that we need not fear condemnation or we need not fear judgment, that our court date has been moved from the future to our past and we now stand fully justified and freely forgiven, God, all because of the work that you've done, not because of what we've done. And so we thank you for that, Father. Thank you for sending your son, Christ Jesus, as a sacrifice for our sins. As we receive the communion uh, from the communion table this morning, Lord God, may we remember that and may we be nourished by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.